Hello, 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 and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and in this episode, we continue our journey through the Harry Potter series and through New World Wine Regions. This episode, I was joined by three of my closest friends and some folks that you might recognize. Sarah Shackett, Gabriel Urbina, and Zach Valenti of Wool 359 and No Bad Ideas. This is Zach's first, and hopefully not last, appearance on Pairing, but you may remember Sarah from our Battlestar Galactica episode and Gabriel from our His Dark Materials episode. If you haven't listened to those ones yet, definitely go back and check them out. They're very fun. You might have heard of Wolf 359, but if you haven't listened to No Bad Ideas yet, go check that out as well. It's a conversational podcast where Sarah, Zach, and Gabriel take a really bad idea that they found on the internet and turn it into an awesome idea for a movie. These three are brilliant and hilarious, so I cannot recommend that highly enough. They also created the audio drama Time Bombs, which they wrote, recorded, and produced all in one week. That was so crazy, but it is so good. We have a couple of very exciting announcements before we dive in. First, I did not edit this episode. I am thrilled to announce that none other than the great Julia Schifini is joining our team as an audio editor. You may remember Julia from our Thor and wrestling episodes, or maybe you know her from Spirits, or maybe as the lead actor in Tides, or as the sound designer of Giannis Descending, or as an actor or contributor to countless other podcasts. Julia is a serious rock star in the podcasting world, and I couldn't be more grateful for her help, so that is super exciting. Also joining us is friend of the show, John Paul Sorelli, who is helping us out with some transcripts. These transcripts are coming up slow and steady, but with John Paul's help, they'll be coming faster, so you can look forward to those as well. John Paul is the creator of Mondo Vulgare, a horror and cult film page, which you should like on Facebook if you are at all interested in film. It is awesome. I love seeing those posts every day. The only people who I love as much as Julia and John Paul right now are our patrons, including our producer, Emma Cohen, who always has chocolate, just like Lupin, our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who never ever needs a time-turner, and our newest patron, Jesus Gonzalez, who never has any trouble conjuring a Patronus. If you would like to join Emma, Mara, Jesus, and all of our other patrons, now is the time. We're running a special through the end of the month, so March 31st, and if you join us at the $3 level, we'll send you a free sticker. If you join us at the $15 producer level, you'll get a free t-shirt. Winston and I just got our pairing t-shirts and pillow in the mail, and oh my gosh, they're so adorable. If you don't follow us on Instagram, definitely follow us at Pairing Podcast. I've been posting pictures. It's really cute. The cats are in them. It's awesome. Make sure to check out all our merch options at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch, and to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. I'm also now posting weekly wine fun facts and recommendations for all of our patrons, so you can get access to those for just $1. This week, I'm going to ask a favor of you. If you are enjoying the show, will you, as you're listening or once your hands are free, text, email, message, or call a friend that you think might like the show and recommend us to them? Word of mouth is the best way to get more listeners, and we want more people to join us. If you like the show, I know that you know someone who will like it too. We love our listeners, and we want more people to get in on the action. So thank you in advance. Quick note, 
this is episode 33, and uh, yesterday was Winston's 33rd birthday, so make sure to wish him a happy birthday on Twitter. Without further ado, here is episode 33, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So, well, today I just, you know, was walking down the street and found three random people who I've never talked to before and who don't know each other at all to talk about Prisoner of Azkaban. And I'm who, just kidding. And who definitely have never been on this show before. No. Why yeah, definitely, definitely never been on this show before. Yep. Uh, well, one has never been on this yeah, show Yeah, I was going to say, speak for yourselves, you two. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to pairing Zach Valenti. Hello. And only Zach Valenti. He's the only well, one that's welcome. That's real, That's real though. You guys are just Yeah, here. and also Gabrielle Urbina and Sarah Shackett are here, I guess. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, you having for having Zach us. and for tolerating yeah. our presence, Emma. It means a lot. <laughs> You're it's, welcome. You're so it's welcome. It's in my writer. I, I don't podcast without you two. That, that makes so much sense now. Yeah, my, my entire my entire career uh, no. just kind of like slammed into focus. Don't read the fine print. That's the moral of the story. That's right. It works right. out well for you good, every good, time. And they are still making other colored M&Ms. I just like the green ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, in case you couldn't tell, uh, these three have never worked together ever, and nope. <laughs> not including not on Wolf Three Fifty Nine, and definitely not on No Bad Ideas. Their new awesome conversational kind of story. I, how would you ex- describe it exactly? Um. So we would describe it as half demented game show, half <laughs> earnest writerly real talk. That. Is perfect. Yeah. I think that's a perfect description. It's awesome. It's delightful. Definitely check it out. But here today, there are definitely no bad ideas because the ideas are talking about Prisoner of Azkaban with the three of you who are all brilliant writers and uh, film connoisseurs and and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that's about what we're gonna this do. Is writing a check. Yeah, I don't know yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I will say I think that. Page for page, Prisoner mm-hmm. of Azkaban might have the highest concentration of good ideas out I, of the I Harry Potter I need to think Potter about this books. right now. Wow. I think so, too. I think so, too. Though, the time turner, possibly not the best idea. It's it's flawed. It's, it's flawed. the country except, of Doctor Who. You got to go for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> except yep. that I need one yesterday. <laughs> uh, time turner. I need one. Oh, you, you, oh, there you go. <laughs> In the past. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just wanted to start off real quick. Because with these Harry Potter episodes, I'm doing a little bit, a teensy, teensy bit more structured wine stuff. And so I just wanted to talk about a few things up front, and I'll talk about a few things at the end, and then we'll be, we'll be good. So, as, as I'm sure you know, I'm calling this the Harry Potter and New World Wine series, mm-hmm. while the Tolkien episodes were Middle Earth and Old World Wines. Get it? Get I it? I do. So for every Harry Potter book, I'm going to be talking about a different big major New World wine region. And the one for this book is South Africa. Oh, my God. Which, Zach, can you do a South African accent? I'm really bad at Not South African accents. command. <laughs> All right. <laughs> totally Don't want to fair. offend any cultures. Uh, I'm doing it super wrong. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's the hardest tricky. one for me. 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'll come out later. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. If the inspiration strikes. I had a friend, I had a coworker and friend that I worked with for several years who was South African. And there's like this weird intermingling of like Afrikaans and Dutch. And it's very, very complicated. And I have a hard time imitating it. But anyway, And the South Australian African... in me tries to take over halfway through. Exactly. Anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's usually what that, happens. That guy's just trying to take over the whole world. <laughs> it, oh, that damn Australian, Zach. I mean, you give him one Foster's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is a wine oh, show. That's... <laughs> I know. It's really bad. Don't it's... give him a Foster's. <laughs> <laughs> we have so many more questions now about non-Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so quickly, I just wanted to uh, talk about South African wine. So I am drinking a South African Chenin Blanc, which is my favorite wine coming from South Africa. I've talked about Chenin Blanc a little bit on the show before. It's basically my favorite white grape. It's really, it can be kind of sweet and fruity, but it's really high in acidity. So that's that's what I like, that kind of high acid kind of fruity wines. And I'm going to talk about how that, I think, ties into maybe a character in Prisoner of Azkaban later. Ooh. But this one is called The Painted Wolf. Oh, oh, get oh, it! Wow. I get it. Wow, get it! So on brand. Ah, I love a good pun. It's what it I live for. for. It, it, no, it works on multiple levels. Yeah, it does. Seriously, it does. And oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast is over now. <laughs> yep, it's we, done. They have to. It. They have to be stopped. <laughs> yep. So very cool. So South Africa is possibly one of the oldest New World wine regions as in it's been making wine, recorded making wine for the longest time. And it probably started before this. I've heard differing accounts, but it definitely started at least, you know, when the Dutch came and colonized the country. Oh, and boy. Realized, womp womp. And they found some native grapes there, but then they ended up importing a bunch of French grapes and European grapes there. And now South Africa is... P.S., did you know that South Africa is almost twice the size of Texas? Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Mercator maps are bullshit, man. I know, right? And that is just that is just nuts to me. But a, pretty, a fairly small portion of it on the western coast is where most of the wine is made. And the most famous region there is called Stellenbosch. Which mm. that's that's a fun one. Yeah. And okay, I'll I'll talk about South Africa a little bit more as we go, but I just wanted to start y'all out with where we are. And so cheers. It's totally not two o'clock in the afternoon here. <laughs> I'll drink to it not being two o'clock in the afternoon. Cheers. There cheers. we go. Cheers. All right. Enough enough of that wine talk. Let's yeah. get into it. <laughs> Let's talk about so. a children's book now that we've yeah. <laughs> now that we've had our alcohol. <laughs> We're normal adults, we promise. <laughs> yep. Yep. Hashtag role that's, models. That's the brand. That's the brand. Gotta stick to it. All right. So I have a feeling you all have a thought or two about the book, maybe, but I do want to talk about well, I want to hear what you think, but I also, this is one where I would like to talk a little bit about the movie at some point. Sure, hmm. we can do that. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, which I don't know, maybe that's a good place to start. 
the the movie compared to the book. All right, we can we can get into it. I didn't know that we would be getting our um, fighting gloves out this I early. Mean, I know. Huh. That's what, I know. This is what the let line me sharpen was for. my sword. Yeah, yeah. No, because we salty. disagree about this. This is one of your favorite. Ooh, oh, oh no, no, it's no, 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 no. You don't like this movie. So when I when I saw the films for Sorcerer's Stroke, Philosopher's Stone, mm-hmm. and for Chamber of Secrets, I remember kind of. Being like, oh, I'm annoyed that they changed the reason why they found this thing over here, and this detail was bullshit. This is the difference and between I the two the of us. Because I was just so relieved that, like, they got most of it right. <laughs> right. Sure, sure, sure. That was my feeling. Yeah. For the no, first no, no, two no. Movies. No, no, no. But I think that, like, it was a lot of overwhelmingly that. A yeah. lot of kind of like, whoo. Like, mm-hmm. it was not awful. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, right. It wasn't the books, but. It but was, no, yeah. but how could it totally. be? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Azkaban, I was like viscerally angry leaving the movie theater. I was wow. like, I was like, that movie wow. was bullshit. I have this um, this clearly imaginary conversation in my head from when you explained how you actually liked it. And here's no, and, no, and, he, and here's the, there's and, a sneaky thing about it. And here's the thing, though, I think that the problem is that um, when I was watching it as 13, I was very much watching it as an illustration of the story. And mm-hmm. I think that the third movie absolutely fails on a story level. Um, mm. And I think that it is borderline incoherent in terms of how it mm. moves the characters along and how it presents information. It moves I have space. spent now, oh God, 15 years. Whenever I find someone that has not read the Harry Potter books... Um, but has seen the movies. I'm yeah. always kind of like, okay, climax of the third book. Explain to me your understanding of Sirius Black's relationship with James Potter and how Peter Peregrew and Remus Lupin are involved. To this date, I have never found anybody that has given me a satisfactory explanation. Um, I have never found anyone that has understood that backstory uh, in just any from the movie. just from the movie. Wow. Um, sure. Since then, hmm. revisiting the film, I've kind of grudgingly grown to kind of appreciate that, unlike the first two movies that are kind of a very... They're Christmas movies. And they're kind of like very like, just like craftsman, workman-like movies. Oh, sure. Like they're kind of well shot, but and that's kind of all that you can say about the way that they're shot. The third movie is visually alive and visually inventive. No, it's a film in a way that the other Harry Potter movies are adaptations. I just think it's a good I, film with I a bad agree. script. That's can my we hot take. can we dunk on Steve Cloves for a little while? Because Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Steve Cloves is the worst person. <laughs> Who is he? He's the screenwriter of all the Harry Potter oh, movies. Except wow. for except for one. There's it, one um, that he didn't write, if I remember correctly. I thought he was involved with all of them. I, I, I kind of Was it say, Goblet of Fire? No, I kinda wanna say that it was like um Half Blood Prince. Keep talking and I'm gonna no. go ask my friend. IMDb. I internet about yes. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because this is where Steve Cloves starts to get like fixations on like he loses sort of the heart of the the stories and like sort of the central mysteries of each uh, book uh, or film um, are mm-hmm. far less interesting to him than Hermione Granger, uh, who yeah. is, is is a very cool person. I love Hermione, but. It 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 it. He, we love you, Hermione. Hermione's great. Yeah. But 
and I think you 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 really feel that like after uh, Chamber of Secrets, sort of the the shackles come off a little bit, and the filmmakers felt a little bit freer to both because Quaron was trying something uh, more interesting and dynamic visually. Um, Steve Cloves is trying to like do different kinds of character work that's not necessarily in the books um, while sure. still like hitting all of the the set pieces. But he loses sort of the heart of the story a little bit um, and loses Harry in a really like fundamental way. Agreed. Um, and this, ha- this starts fair. in the this starts in the third film and then gets worse. Um, till yeah. you're in the seventh film, and there's there's you know weird awkward camping. Zach, do you have any thoughts? Do I have any thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> I have many thoughts, <laughs> and uh, one of them is that it's not my favorite. Um, for the okay. record, my least favorite Harry Potter film of all of them is number four. Really, hmm. really okay. interesting. Those stupid music videos of the other schools coming in. Oh, they're awful. That's Gollum's Dance fire. number because yeah. no, no, I'm no. a Boba Tong and Durmstrang. <laughs> I the worst. Oh my it's, gosh, it's really bad. It's yeah. I've uh, I've all but blotted it out from my memory. And yet, it's the first thing that comes to mind as soon as somebody says Harry Potter film. Uh, <laughs> I tried to burn out the rest, but they say that my entire identity might go with it. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I'm yeah. still not ruling it out. <laughs> Um, you might be willing to roll those dice, <laughs> yeah. folk. Like we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. I'll just start over. <laughs> it's worth it. Um, but uh, so I would say, at the time, it was my least favorite when it first came out, mm-hmm. and and this is for I admittedly superficial reasons. But I just didn't go to Harry Potter in my mind for blue jeans and oh yeah they were all up in the news Uh, that was my brother's like that that made him angry in a way things hadn't made him angry before sure Uh, the great controversy of whether they wear muggle clothes under their robes i know which i don't think we should get into here i think that she covers it pretty well if they shat on the floor and made it disappear (laughs) i doubt they had jeans on too but that's just me and uh dear Uh, listener if you just did a double take about what the heck did Zach just say? Uh, go to Pottermore. There's yeah, some, there's yeah. some, stuff there some you fun read. facts. The internet has been spawning madness that you should keep up with. I'll say I did not have like as visceral a reaction as the two of you at the time, but I I also was the kid who sat through Phantom Menace and thought it was fun. Like mm-hmm. I didn't. I yeah. did not have super discerning high standards for the Harry Potter yeah. films because I knew that I was going to be a snob about it and be like, well, it's not the books, you know? Right, right, right. So I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate, which is not normally the devil's advocate position <laughs> with the people who I talk with, which is that the Prisoner of Azkaban film is by far my favorite wow. of Harry Potter films. Yeah. And I think it's because, and I think that your criticisms are fair and that makes sense because you're much smarter, better writers than I am. Thank you, thank you. uh, (laughs) I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid. (laughs) But I thought it was an important departure, again, from the first two films. Uh And it was like, you know, some time had passed between them so that, you know, all the actors could go through puberty and they could find a new Dumbledore and who, I do have feelings about Michael Gambon as Dumbledore, but... In general, I thought that Alfonso Cuaron was the only person who was actually inventive with the world. He was the only director who was actually taking pieces from the world and creating 
creating an imaginative, exciting thing that was not just an adaptation of the books. I agree. Agreed on that count. And that was really refreshing and fun for me. Like, you know, I love what he does with the Whomping Willow and the paintings kind of coming to life a little bit more. And he was playing with things that never really then got played with later in later movies. Yeah. If we're going to yeah. talk about, if we're going to shit on Steve Cloves, I would also shit on David Yates, like, a lot. No, I and the, can somebody do not like me? him. David Yates is like the director. Movies. He started with uh, the fifth movie? Correct. Because mm-hmm. Mike And then Newell. did everything else, and he's done both of the Fantastic yeah. Beast movies, and it's, uh Anyway. No, and like- We don't need to get into that. Well, let's get into it for just a second. Okay. Um, while Sa- we're here. Yeah, well, as long as we're in yeah, the Yeah, while we're here. <laughs> no. Sarah and I have... It's a lovely can, can of worms. You're just going to let it... <laughs> just lie there, there unopened. Open. Yeah. I mean, we've done a lot of things, <laughs> including drunkenly it. ranking all of the Harry Potter we movies have. late at night. Yeah. No, but like yeah. something that I've told you before is that I'm always shocked that having gone through Chris Columbus, Alfonso Cuaron, and Mike Newell, that... David Yates is the one that they stuck with. J.K. Rowling went like, that's the one. Like, that's my guy. Like, he's the one that sees yeah. the world the way that I see it in my mind. Especially because he's he the has. He's boring one. <laughs> it, it, no, like, it's all like a very bland. I'm like, right now, David, David Yates is hearing this and just being like, four people for my blacklist of never going to collaborate <laughs> with them. Let me write but them down if on David my Yates is pound listening bills to this podcast, I'm <laughs> No, but like it is kind of a very bland visual aesthetic, except for the spells where yeah. they has this kind of like mm. hyper sharp, hyper angular like aesthetic for them that I've never understood. Like all of a sudden, every time that it's a spell, it's kind of these like futurist like turns. Yeah. No, and this is like yeah. David Yates sort of looking around um, at the films that were coming out around him at the time. You had the the first Twilight. This was the heyday of Transformers movies. Yeah, born and films. Born films. And like trying to bring some of that sort of jump aesthetic into a magic world. And it doesn't make any sense. No. Yeah. Mm, yeah. By the way, before, before we forget about this, uh, his first movie, Order of the Phoenix, that is the only one that Steve Kloves did not write. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because was... that's actually the only one that, ironically, I kind of like. From well, then that tracks. Well, yeah. I think that it's the most it's the most judicious book to script yes, editing because it kind of had Agreed. to be. Yeah, and because I think it's the book that is the most in need of an editor. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Okay. Well, I think we've you know there's. We can pick this conversation up later. But... <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but there is a whole uh, novel that I think we're all agreed upon, which is terrific. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Agreed. Well, are we all there so- for the book? Solidly. Okay, book right. is awesome. Book is it awesome. It is awesome. Sirius is a great character. Seriously. Yes. Yep. Yes. Siri- Sirius Black is... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh no, Sarah! Did you get it? No, I I, I got it, and That's I was pouring okay. wine for myself, <laughs> and then I poured more wine. <laughs> well, good, good, yeah. <laughs> That's that's our motto here at Pairing. Always pour more wine. <laughs> no, but I'm, bl- I'm glad, Emma, how studiously you were like, wait a minute, let me make sure that everybody understood that bad joke. Like, let, let it not be said that this host. <laughs> well, you know, it's not funny if you don't explain it. That's how humor works, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we explained that. Okay, so this brings me to, since we're talking about wine, one other (laughs) wine thing. 
about South Africa. Yes. Which is that, did you know that the Cape of Good Hope Mm -hmm. used to be called Cabo Tormentoso by the Portuguese explorer who, quote unquote, discovered it. I don't remember his name. Is that like Henry the Navigator or something? Yeah, something like that, perhaps, because it was apparently a very stormy cape. And there's actually there's a really fun wine label from South Africa called Tormentoso. And I used to sell there since so. And it's delicious. And Mm. it's like 10 to 12 bucks a bottle. So there you go. But this Cabo Tormentoso reminded me a little bit of Azkaban, because when you see Azkaban, I always picture like, you know, there's a stormy sea around it. Right, and craggy The the seas are never calm around Azkaban. And as we know, that's where the prisoner, Sirius Black, came from. Excellent. (laughs) See how good I am at segues? Masterfully executed link there, Emma. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So talk to me about Sirius Black. What do you think? I think he's seriously awesome. Mm-hmm. It's gotta, uh... We're just going to ride this thing <laughs> you're, around. You're counting at home. This is the third time this joke has been made. Yeah. Me. Uh, you may want to start playing a drinking game with your wine of choice. Hey. <laughs> it's such a cool, slow play to introduce mm. a character because you start yeah. with um, him being just sort of this item of interest on Muggle News. You have the wonderful Stan Pike. Oh, Stan Introduce Pike. him in, yeah, who's less wonderful later, but we'll, we won't get into that. Um, yeah. Sort of bring you up to speed on, and you have this sort of subplot and you, you also have like the ominous dog and then they come together and then it's, he's not quite as antagonistic as first believed. It's, it's just, she's so good at layering all of the pieces of the eventual mystery at the heart of the book in. And this is mm-hmm. this is just a fun, like, case study of her doing that. In addition really to him is. being kind of a cool dude. Yeah. Yes. And it really is, you know, I, I think Winston was saying, you can make the argument that Prisoner of Azkaban can kind of stand alone on its own as a mystery novel. Obviously, it fits into the story, but, like, we don't get Voldemort in this book. And that's incredible. And... And usually I think that it goes that, like, in series, the books where the villain is the most present tend to be the most compelling ones. And this is one of the few exceptions to the rule where it's the one where the villain is almost complete. The main villain of the series, the kind of arch villain, is almost completely not present. But it's the growth that needs to to happen and sort of the the understanding that Harry needs to have about himself and where he comes from in order to make Goblet of Fire possible. And it's so compelling because it's so focused on Harry in a weird way as opposed to Voldemort. Yeah, and just the way that the story unfolds through Harry's eyes works better in this book, I would say, than in some of the other ones where it it kind of is like, you're like, why why aren't you asking more questions? Like, why aren't you figuring this out? But in mm-hmm. this one, it's like he's really getting information as as it would organically happen. And it's every every little step of the way he's getting a little bit more. And it's so fun and exciting. Even every time I reread the book, I'm like, oh, and that's where he learns. And that's where, oh, and there we get Lupin. And oh, and it's just it's just good fun. And he is unusually for Harry, very kind of active in information gathering. Like yeah. he yes. is going up to yes. Lupin and kind of being like, wait a minute, what did happen with Sirius Black? Is it true? Right. Like I heard, I overheard somewhere that like he did this thing with my parents. Like, is that true? 
he is kind of like a more active detective right. than he is in the other ones where kind of Hermione is Hermione the more, is active, the more detective. active detective. Right. <laughs> right. So also, let's talk about possibly the objectively like most solid dude in the series. Buckbeak. Remus Lupin. <laughs> wow. Buckbeak. <laughs> good timing. You mean the one actually good Defense Against the Dark Arts professor? Yes. Yeah, the yes. only one. Although I don't know. I think that the Caros get a bad rep. No, I'm kidding. We don't yeah, actually yeah. see them teach. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Notes. It's true. I cannot speak to their to their teaching ability. I doubt they had most, as much compassion or chocolate. Mm, that's true. That's it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Chocolate, the secret. The chocolate is very important. And speaking of chocolate, I was thinking about what wine to pair with Lupin. Uh-huh. And I th- I think, speaking of Portugal, I think it would be good to go with a nice port because port goes very well with chocolate. There you go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's always got, it's also very fortifying because it is a fortified wine. And I think that, you know, we're always seeing Lupin looking rather sickly and weak because mm. of his nightly escapades. And so, I think that Lupin could do with some port on a regular basis. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Or any wine bottle with a wolf on it. Yeah. Yes. Like this one. <laughs> <laughs> right. That will Another go bad thing about the movies is like the most hairless werewolf I've ever seen. Yeah, weird hair. I know. Weird I, werewolf I do design. hate the yeah. werewolf. Yeah, I hate that werewolf design. Yeah. Yeah. David Thewlis deserves a better werewolf he because he was he a was, very he good, was a good Lupin. Lupin. Yeah. yeah. Let's also let's talk about David Thewlis for a second. Yeah. He's uh-huh. had just a heck of a career. He for really like has. Very quietly. Yes. Seemingly un, un like he's very understated, but he's he's played a lot of roles and he's been in a lot of films. Um, and so he has. good for him. Good for him. No, and like, um, if you go back to the 90s, he was kind of playing these very... Callow. Oh, yeah, and like very like, like shocking and very like purposefully unlikable roles. Yes. So it's always right. impressive to me that like at some point somebody went and looked at all those and was like, bam, that's that my sweetheart. Remus Lupin, let's go. Yeah, it's, it does seem like a very surprising casting choice, but yeah. it works. It works. He works as Lupin. And now, of course, you have it the other way around where a lot of people who met him as Remus Lupin oh, sure. now, now get to go back. back and see like the Mike Lee films. And they're kind of like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. this is a total trip. Right. Emma Thompson, also kind of weird. Yeah. But like. Oh, I thought she was great. No, no. Like as... casting wise, like she was wonderful yeah. and she knocked it out of the park. And I wonder if it gave her the idea that she could actually go do Nanny McPhee. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, she's Emma Thompson. She can do anything. This is true. She can do anything. Yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you because this is one. I mean, I know we've got differing opinions on the film, but I the two casting, the two big casting choices, I think, bigger than David Thewlis even, Ooh. are Gary Oldman as Sirius and Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. Groovy new Dumbledore. Yeah, groovy new Dumbledore. And I will say, I've, I mean, I've talked about this before, on, both on the podcast and in life, but you know, Richard Harris was perfect visually for early Dumbledore. It would never have worked if he had survived to play the Dumbledore that was to come because he was quite old and probably couldn't have done it. Sure. But I have mixed feelings about Michael Gambon. I like him. I like him in moments, but overall my problem with him in Prisoner of Azkaban is that he's just weird all the time. And there's no sense of that kind of emotional depth that Dumbledore has, even in Prisoner of Azkaban, where he doesn't play that much of a role. Yeah. Shots fired. No, no, no. They're good quality shots. 
Um, yeah. I will say this much. It is Michael Gambon comes in with a strong acting choice. Like yes, it is does. a strong interpretation of the character. Right True. down to kind of like the visual design. Because Dumbledore is a weird looking dude, but his Dumbledore, like even by Dumbledore standards, I think looks kind of bizarre and kind of off kilter. And But with that said, I think that for me, it kind of tips over into, in my mind, Gandalf and Dumbledore are kind of brothers in eccentricity sure. where yes. they're kind of wily and they're kind of wry and they kind of have these moments when they can kind of go, I just did something weird, but don't worry about it. I'm old and wise and like you can be reassured that I've got this. Um, sure. Michael Gambon's Dumbledore, I don't get that feeling of that last bit of the, like, I've got this. Like, no, it just... takes all the reassurance away Yeah, a little bit. I just remember, like, there's that scene in Goblet of Fire after Harry's name is pulled out of the goblet. Oh, God. And, like, you know, like, they go, like, backstage or whatever, and, like, Dumbledore is, like, shaking the kid, being like, did yeah. you put your name in the goblet? Did you put it in, motherfucker? And I'm yeah. just kind of like, holy shit. Like, what is happening? <laughs> Yep, I think that I think that stands out as the weirdest and strongest acting choice that Michael Gambon made as uh, as Dumbledore. Yeah, doesn't really make sense. Doesn't check out to me. Not, but, not quite. Not quite. But you know, he went with it, and you know, say what you will. At least he doesn't back down from a choice. Absolutely, and it's it's yeah. it's some of something that I think about. Like he can't help but playing the character a little bit younger and with a little mm-hmm. bit more energy and edge then you know mm-hmm. even if we're, if we're bringing Gandalf into it like Ian McKellen has that wiliness but he also has like a very aged physicality to his Gandalf yeah. Yeah. and Harris had that with uh, the Dumbledore in the first two films and, yeah. and Gambon doesn't affect it at all yeah. um, he doesn't try to like bridge that gap uh, and it's just it's such it's like an interesting choice and I think perhaps more correct for where the character would end up going. But it's sure. such an abrupt choice that like it reads as wrong to me all the time. Me too, I have to say. And I'm sure that you know this, but, you know, Ian McKellen was a potential Dumbledore when Richard Harris died. But I think, you know, between being Gandalf and Magneto, I think he was like, you know what? <laughs> I could do anything. But, but you know there's a multiverse out there that's a much brighter timeline. <sighs> I want to live in it. that world. <laughs> yeah. I want to live there. And he's president now. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Prime Minister. Yes. Prime Minister. Prime Minister. No, no, we changed the rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach, to, to sort of change the subject, I just wanted to say this before I forgot because you just mentioned Buckbeak. And <laughs> part of what Winston and I were talking about is that in – Every in every book, J.K. Rowling sort of introduces a new kind of social thing or a social social issue, I would say. And in this one, I think more so. Well, I think it's injustice in general in Hmm. this book between Buckbeak and Sirius. Those are the to me, that's the main kind of thread and theme is you know, not just accepting what you're told and asking questions about what what justice has been served. Yeah. And, you know, the that things we we see one scenario, which is Buckbeak, which is that we know that Buckbeak is innocent or that Buckbeak was provoked. But Buckbeak is a bird 
or a, I'm sorry, hippogriff. hippogriff. Yes. A hippogriff. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Bird-like and, and so can't defend himself. And so we see that and we're kind of on that trajectory and watching Hermione and Ron and Harry to a certain extent, you know, try to work on Buckbeat's defense. And then on the other hand, we see Sirius's story in the opposite direction, where we think that he is guilty from the beginning, and then we slowly learn over time, or actually pretty abruptly at the in that chapter where you're told everything. Because, you know, there are clues along the way that you yeah. can figure out, but it would be pretty hard, I think, to figure out the story that J.K. Rowling had concocted. But we learn at the end, or in the close to end there, that Sirius is a victim of injustice. So those yeah. are my two cents about that. Hmm. I'm curious to hear what you think about it. I, I would have to agree with that and probably sleep on it um, to sure. give anything half as eloquent as that. Um, but, no, uh, no, please, please. Um, I'm also married to a lawyer, so I think about ah, injustice. Ah, <laughs> I see. I, I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of my favorite things about the book's or the characters, and I think our fearless leader, J.K., mm-hmm. does a, a really solid job of weaving the story in such a way where, it, you know, it, it has that that feeling of realness um, and just those connections that uh, I, I just remember losing myself in the story. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I've definitely not thought so much about just the hand guiding the story so much as being in it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I I I love myself some Buckbeak. I have a hard drive named named after. It's pretty Buckbeak. great. Um, <laughs> do you have a Do you have a hippogriff tattooed on your chest? Hey, like, <laughs> isn't I just that the don't thing? Influence in... the kids in half blood. Yeah, prints, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to influence the kids in getting life permanent things like hippogriff tattoos in their chest. So you're gonna neither I confirm nor deny. <laughs> just just for reference, I believe that. I think it's in the seventh book. I think it's in Deathly Hallows where Ron is like, you don't have a tattoo of a hippogriff on your chest, right? I knew Ginny was lying about that. <laughs> That's funny. Ginny Weasley is the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, you know, she really is. Okay. And uh, Ginny Weasley in the books is the best. Ginny Weasley in the movies is yeah, the not so worst. Great. Yeah. The worst. Ugh. I, you know, I respect that they stuck by their casting choice and they didn't recast her. But it felt very much like once the character became real, Bonnie Wright was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it's it, it's tough to get cast in that role when you're 10 and then have to like live oh, up to yeah. it. Right. And it was such oh, a yeah, role of the die for all of the actors. Yeah. I know. And it just, it turned out so well for the trio. And so. Although what's Ron doing these days? He's doing a lot of theater. He's got like an ice yeah. cream yeah. truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? 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 I read that, that Rupert Grant like owns an ice cream truck. I read and... something about this too, and that there there was a sort of a pun offering at the ice cream truck. Oh, and yeah. I don't I don't quite remember the story. Whoa! In internet. Um, but yeah, both he and um and Radcliffe are doing a bunch of theater. Huh. And Radcliffe is in this new show with um Steve Buscemi. Miracle Workers. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Which I am I am curious about that. Can we talk about Patronuses? Sure. Um, yes, let's Actually, bef- yeah. before we do that, there was um a thought with the injustice thing. Oh yeah. Which is just that I've always loved the notion of 
these books are all kid has a broken life. Kid discovers that he's magic. Magic mm-hmm. fixes his life. Except mm-hmm. every year, it's kind of relearning these lessons of like, oh, wait, no, it doesn't matter how magic the world gets. You still have to deal with problems. And like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so it's kind of like, you know, book one, broken life, magic fixes everything. Oh, wait, no, there's still evil in magic world. Book right. two, it's okay. We can deal with that. Oh, wait, no, there's still like kind of racial tensions and these ideas of like some people are just inherently better than others and then like book three is all of a sudden like oh wait even if law enforcement has magic they still make mistakes and prejudice and these things sometimes get in the way of justice all the way up to like you know book five is then kind of like totalitarianism still happens in like magic society and kind of these ideas of no, you know, you're still going to have shades and versions of humans these are problems. Humans at the end of exactly, the day. yeah. In many ways, I think that Dolores Umbridge is a much scarier villain than Voldemort because she's a much more recognizable villain that yeah. we see in in our daily lives to whatever extent. Everyone knows a Dolores Umbridge. Not everyone knows a Voldemort. I don't think I know a Voldemort. That's fair, but I would imagine that you've met some Tom Riddles in your time. Yeah, 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 that's fair. That's fair. I think what's scary about any of the Umbridges of the world is uh, that when they write history books, they tend to paint themselves really bright, yeah, shiny. Mm. Yeah. Um, but then again, who's to say Tom Riddle wouldn't have? Yeah. So uh, Rupert Grint, the, the name of his ice cream truck was Mr. Whippy. No. Wow. Wait a minute. It was? <laughs> is it no longer? I... I, I'm trying to find out, but I think he, he bought it a while ago, so he probably doesn't do much with it anymore. Well, he was there in 2016. I would just like to read a quote from from Rupert Grant about his ice cream truck. Yeah, please. please. I keep my van well stocked. It's got a proper machine that dispenses Mr. Whippy ice cream, and I buy my lollies wholesale, 50 for a tenner, so I never run short. I'm not allowed to sell my merchandise. I'd need a license for that. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm glad that he's staying on the up and up, I guess. Oh, it just, I love it. I love it. Okay, so back in the day, my question was, the next <laughs> casting choice I had. <laughs> Way back in the olden days. Way back in like 10 minutes ago. Yes. Next casting choice. Next casting choice I have a question about mm-hmm. is uh, Gary Oldman as Sirius. Thoughts? I'll I'll start. Um, I think that my my feeling about Gary Oldman as Sirius is pretty much my same feeling as uh, Alan Rickman as Snape, hmm. which is that not immediate, not originally how I pictured the the character, and still is not really how I picture the character, like visually. But I think they did such a great job portraying the role, and I think that Gary Oldman did a great job, and also, you know, originally. Both with Lupin and and Oldman, I'm I mean <laughs> Sirius, and they would have been younger. Yeah, I think uh, technically in the books, but I think it was kind of important to have Gary Oldman become and and uh, and David Thewlis become sort of father figures to Harry, and yeah. that's very much the role that they're taking on. More Lupin in this book, and then Sirius in the later books or the next couple books. And that's one thing that's one thing that Winston and I talked about in the last episode that I'm interested to hear what you have to think is that you know throughout the series we get all sorts of 
father figures for Harry. Mm-hmm. And Harry's always asking about his dad and always concerned about his dad. He doesn't really get any mother figures besides maybe Molly Weasley. Molly Weasley is solidly the one that he sort of she, thinks well, about. Yeah, maybe that's and... just a testament to how awesome Molly Weasley is. Sure. He's like, this this lady's my mom now. <laughs> I don't need I don't need a whole array of mothers. <laughs> I would argue that McGonagall ends up operating as a mother figure, I think surprising sure. kind of everyone in the process. Yeah, I th- I yeah. I I think we as adults reading this book now see it in a way that neither our younger selves nor Harry would. Correct. But like she yeah. is she is operating that way to the best of her ability. But like I don't think. 15-year-old Harry Potter has any clue that that's what's going on. No, he would realize it in the moment when Caro spat in her face and he suddenly got that level of angry. That's when all of a sudden it was like, sure, you just insulted my mom. We're going to have yeah. some cruciatus right now. Well, and also, like, in this book, when she confiscates the firebolt, like, that's a very mom moment. It is. Like, sure, yeah. I'm doing this thing that's going to make you really mad, but it's because I love you and I care about you, which is a hard thing to understand as a 13-year-old. Um, it is. Absolutely. When you when you want something that nice and shiny, that someone is actually doing something to take care of you. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I like that, that McGonagall is kind of a, mo- a mother figure as well. But, but you know, between... Lupin, Sirius, Hagrid, Dumbledore. I mean, he's looking for father figures in a way that Harry right. Potter is not looking for a mother figure, which is why it's so wonderful when he finally gets to see memories of his parents at his age. Yeah. Like his mom is yeah. the one who is so exceptional. Yeah. And his dad yeah. is the asshole. <laughs> his dad's kind of a schmuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's great. And and I think it's also very astute of J.K. Rowling that a 13-year-old uh, or an 11 to 17-year-old boy who doesn't have any parents would probably be more concerned with his father than his mother. Especially since all we hear about Lily is that she's just wonderful and awesome and great and she's basically Hermione of the past. But... Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> Characterized. <laughs> Huzzah. But yeah, I just I just thought that's a, that was an interesting thing that I didn't really think about before. Okay, I want to get to Patronuses, but I have one more little wine thing that I think you all will appreciate. Just speaking about literature in general, because this is obviously one of the greatest works of literature of our time. The writing is getting better. It is indeed. It is indeed. And as we were saying, kind of, you know, as Zach was saying, like, you lose yourself in this story, I think, a lot more than in the previous two books. And I I, I got really, like, really wrapped up in it. In South Africa, which is going to be my one and only attempt at a South African accent, there is a small region called Constantia or Constantia. I I don't know how to pronounce it. And way back in the day, back in the 1600s, they made a dessert wine called, I guess, Vin de Constance or Vin de Constance, basically Constance wine. And it was like the big deal of the day. It was kind of like Madeira or Port. And so it is mentioned by Jane Austen in Sense and Sensibility. And very nice. Baudelaire a couple times. And by Charles Dickens in The Mystery of Edwin Drood. So there you go. 
I don't wow. know why J.K. Rowling didn't talk about it and just, you know, complete the the quadrifecta of <laughs> great authors talking yeah, um, about it's, this one weird it, wine from South Africa. <laughs> it's so odd that the novel from the perspective of the 13-year-old child has hey, so little is, wine in it. This is the book this, where we get butterbeer, It's though. true. It's true. <laughs> I was going to say, you know. <laughs> Can somebody explain, to, does butterbeer mess you up? I don't think Debatable. so. Debatable. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's kind limit? of like. I mean, like, it definitely messes up the house elves, so, like, it has some alcoholic content in it, right? My theory is that it's, like, non-alcoholic beer, which actually does have some alcohol in it. Right. Uh-huh. Like, it has, like, 0.5% or something alcohol in it. So right. that's what I imagine butterbeer is. Or it's, like, kombucha. You know, it's, like, slightly fermented, but it doesn't really have alcohol oh, in it. Oh, God. It's the kombucha of the wizarding world. <laughs> the house elf thing. I, like, I always thought that maybe it had, like, I don't know, like unicorn pee in it or something. And, like, for maybe. humans, something that reacts. For humans, it's like, oh, mm, I see. Sweet. Yeah. And for, like, you know, house elves are like, whoa. Sure. Whoa, I'm man. bombed. <laughs> they are so much smaller. Yeah. It's they true. It's true. Little. And also, they just. Their livers, which they have, <laughs> I know this <laughs> as a scientist in the magic world. Uh, their livers metabolize the urine of <laughs> unicorns. I almost just spat out wine everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> They're just different animals than us. <laughs> There's good um, stuff. Well, speaking of different animals. Uh-huh. Very nice, very nice. Uh, you see where I'm going? Segwayed. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about Patronuses and oh, Dementors and 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 what that's all about. Dementors are terrifying. Yeah. Yes, they're no. very scary. I would say that this is the scariest book so far in the series, like vastly oh, so yeah. compared oh, to the previous two books. One hundred percent. No, like the first two have like thrilling parts and but they're kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of a romp. It's kind of an adventure. And it sort of all happens yeah. like in a tumble. Like I you know, like it's it there's you know, the going through um all of the rooms to get to where the sorcerer's stone is, that all kinda happens at once. Like the right. the, the basilisk freezing Hermione and then like finding the chamber. That happens pretty quickly in sequence. Yeah. Like this mm-hmm. sort of is the dread like is spread out a little bit. And it lingers, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I mean, you well, you've literally got these figures haunting, like floating around constantly who suck the joy out of everything, which I don't know if that's any sort of metaphor for mental illness or anything like that. I mm. believe that she said that it was a metaphor for depression. Okay, yeah. I, and it's a way to kind of broach that concept to children, Correct. maybe. That's which is which is cool. But yeah, they're terrifying. They're totally terrifying. Also associated with law enforcement. I didn't realize depression had yeah. that quality. Ooh, oh man. Oh, I wish Winston were here. But no, I like that. I like that. I like that connection, at which it, which then comes back. And you don't think about it too much in this book. The fact that they have so much power. But it, it comes back in particularly the fifth book yep. when the big breakout happens. Oh, yeah. And so, so that's a very scary thing to, you know, put your trust and put a, the control of many, many dangerous, potentially evil people, but not always, like with Sirius, under the control of much, much more evil creatures. 
But then we get the idea of the Patronus charm and the Patronus, Patronuses, Patroni, Patroni. Well, Gabrielle, I'm glad that you're here because last time we were here, we, we were, were talking, talking oh, about yeah. demons and his dark De- materials. Demons. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and I was saying that the, they're, they're different, but this is kind of... And especially as the series goes on and suddenly like you can use your Patronus to like send messages and stuff. Yeah. It becomes a little bit more, not exactly like a demon because they don't have like personalities, but it's kind of a similar concept. No, it becomes much more like this instead of this particular spell that has a particular function, like some manifestation of some inner part of you, which is like demons are just your soul out in the world. Um, right. and so they, they they do end up becoming much closer to each other. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, it, and that is one of the one of the coolest things I really like in the book. Harry's kind of journey with the Patronus charm. Thinking and... that his dad was saving him, but really it was himself. I know. Sniff, oh my God. sniff, sniff. <laughs> I think I think that's where that that was like the moment where I was like, oh man, these books are a this little is a bit good book. Ser- yeah, yeah, this is a damn good book. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a pretty pretty bold choice and and like really heart wrenching in a way. Who has more thoughts? Otherwise, I have you know not really a segue, just another question. <laughs> no, and I'll say I'll say this much about I think that this is where the series starts to kind of feel a little bit more to me identifiable because it starts to Mm -hmm. kind of follow through on certain things that were only hinted at in previous books. Like, for example, I feel that like in each of the previous books, there was like a game of Quidditch. And then it was like, oh, and by the way, the rest of it happened somewhere. Don't worry about it. This is the first time that it's like, no, we're going to see this like house cup from beginning Mm. to end. And Mm -hmm. we're going to get like the flow of it from the start of the year to the end. That is true. Likewise, you kind of always sort of are like, oh, they're learning about magic and they're having these lessons. This is the first time that it's like, no, the character is going to struggle with a spell. Like he's going to have mm-hmm. to like put work into it. They're going to have to like yeah. stay up late and we're going to see them getting like slowly better and not getting it and just having to like go through it over and over again. No, that's a really good point. And I actually I hadn't thought about that before, that this is the first time that things become real. Things become more real and a little bit more realistic within this world because obviously this is what would what would be happening and i think the the kind of heightened example of that is hermione and the time turner the dreaded time the dreaded time turner (laughs) which i think works really well within the structure of this book as so many harry potter things they tend to do very very well within the structure of a single book but then when they are part of a larger world, it falls apart just a wee bit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it worked perfectly with this book because you're like, how is she doing it? Like, like you know, you know that something weird is happening with her and that she's either split herself into different people or is going back through time or can apparate already or something. You know, something's happening with her, yeah. but you don't know what. And I really like the device of the time turner, which obviously then plays a huge role in the climax of the book, which the most amazing thing about this book is that, you know, the first two thirds of the book are like, you know, the story leading up to the climax. And then the climax happens twice. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's brilliant. And you don't think that, I I wouldn't think that it would work, but it works so well. 
and I think is one of the more creative and compelling choices that J.K. Rowling made in the whole series. No, it's a pretty bold idea of it is. just like we're gonna replay this day, and you're gonna get all these hints and all these kind of like little clues of what is really happening the first time mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. Um, because they can't change anything, so it all has to be present there. But then it has to kind of be, you know, and then to just do it all over again. And like things have things come into focus for you, the reader, at the same time that they come into focus for the characters is such a rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And you basically have the characters in the exact same place as the reader sort of problem solving their way through something that they have already the structure of, but like need to work around. It's, It's really a hard thing to sort of build out and she executes it beautifully. It's where she really becomes like an impressive writer, I think. He thought his dad saved him, but he did. Yeah. That's pretty Ugh. good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is my last at least planned wine thing that I just wanted to touch upon because so I'm trying just so you know, I'm trying in all the Harry Potter episodes to pair a different grape or wine with each of the trio. Because as the as the books oh. go on, they grow and change. And because I'm drinking Chenin Blanc, which is one of my favorite wines in the world, um, that makes that just makes me think Chenin Blanc is a really good wine for Hermione, because it can be sweet, but then it can be super sharp and acidic. And she's got just this amazing sharp intellect. And when push comes to shove in this in this book, she is like. Razor sharp. I feel like that's a good one for Hermione. Shannon Block. This one is from South Africa, and I love I love Shannon Block from South Africa. The most famous Shannon Blancs come from this region called the Loire Valley in France. Mm-hmm. And within the Loire Valley in France, there are three major white wines. One of which is Shannon Blanc. The other of which is Sauvignon Blanc, which oh. I think more people have heard of and is a little bit... So if you have ever had or seen a Sancerre or a Puy Fumé or something like that, that is Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc. And I think that that's a good one for Harry in this hmm. book because um, they're very dry. They're they're kind of they're minerally and kind of grassy. And so he's, he's graduated from kind of like a more fruity Sauvignon Blanc to a kind of a drier Sauvignon Blanc. He starts to develop his sense of humor in this book also. Sure. I think, which is, which is uh, quite dry. And then Ron, I think, is Muscadet, which is one of the driest white wines in the world hmm. because Ron has the driest of wits. I think. <laughs> I think I think that's a good taxonomy, Emma. There we go. There we go. That's and uh, and that's pairing out. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> love it. <laughs> you just got paired, son. You just got paired. <laughs> that's got to be a T-shirt. That's there you go. Yep. You can hear You can get royalties, are. Gabrielle. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Always happy to contribute to your future merch efforts. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hey, Emma from the past. You didn't know this, but we do have merch now. Check it out at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. And let us know if you want a You Just Got Paired t-shirt. All right. Well, that's all that I had, like, written down to talk about. But does anybody, do any of you brilliant people have any other thoughts about this book or the series as a whole? I mean, lots, but... Yeah, I know. That's a big question. I'll say this much for 
Prisoner of Azkaban, I think that it's one of the strongest books. The first three chapters, every time that I reread this book, I'm always kind of like, oh, right. In March. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the night it's bus the does nothing for me. That oh, always... it was about the night bus. No. I, I like the night bus. I like I liked the conceit of the night I bus. I liked it until the movie. The movie Night Bus is not yeah, good. yeah. Oh, that man. is that is the 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 weirdest choice in the movie is so the, the like shrunken head. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that like, wasn't was great. Was she at all that choice? I don't like, know. That's a good question. Her call to make. I mean, really. Uh, my understanding is that she kind of has like script approval. I see. So she had to at least be like, yeah, sounds great, <laughs> sounds good. Um, yeah, maybe she didn't realize that it was like kind of a racist shrunken head, not just a, you know, regular shrunken head. <laughs> and on that day, JK committed her only act of possible insensitivity related to Harry Potter. Shade. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> since I'm doing um since I'm doing uh transcripts now, I'll get to put in there the most sarcasm that has ever been spoken. <laughs> That's cute. That's great. I, yeah. I, I love J.K. Rowling. I think she's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Me too. I, Me too. Is she perfect? No. no. She's, and she really did, like, we, like we've been talking about, for, for these being kid, kids' books in the late 90s and early aughts, she really did a lot, I think. It, at least for me, growing up with these books, even probably being subconsciously aware, again, you know, like in this book, talking about the justice system. In book two, it's racism. Yeah. As as you were saying, Gabrielle, in every in every stage of the way, she does subtly introduce real problems in the world. You know, and does she solve them? No, but and are there other things that are problematic and things that she doesn't deal with? Yes. But they were important, I think, and very indicative of the time that we all grew up in. I think that that is very well put. You know, I don't know that I have much else to say besides that, I don't know, every time I reread this book, it just it just does it for me. I agree, the first couple chapters, you're like, okay, we're getting the rundown at the Dursleys. I, like Sarah, I like the night bus, but there we go. And it's sure. a slightly different, you know, exposition device rather than Harry just reading the newspaper or getting letters from Ron and Hermione. But once once it starts picking up, once once he is in Diagon Alley. Oh, yeah. Then it's. Up, then it then it just kind of steamrolls. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. yeah. I had the Harry Potter series forced on me as a child. Um, oh, you poor, poor I thing. I know. Right? Oh, my gosh. Uh, a librarian perhaps wisely knowing that I would not take this suggestion, uh, suggested the first book to uh, my mother at a book fair. Um, mm. And she was like, great, we are have this long road trip coming up. We'll read this book. Um, and I, as like a pouty 11, 10 year old, however old I was, um, was just not having it. <laughs> um, and it became a thing that like everyone else in my family fell in love with the first book. Um, and I decided to be a snot about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I went off to summer camp that summer. I was going definitely 100% for sure to read the rest of the book while everyone else read it as a as a group. I came back, had not read any of it, but everyone was all in. It's like, have you gotten to platform (laughs) nine and three quarters yet? I was like, no, what the fuck is that? (laughs) Um, And and eventually, like, I, I, I 
it became like a fun family thing for us all to like read the second book and do voices. And it, it was this, yeah. this lovely tradition. And the third book is the one where I was genuinely on the edge of my seat in it, as Zach yeah. said, like invested in yeah. the story and feeling a connection to the characters in a way that I had not done yet. So I think, yeah. you know, I would have to go back one day, I'm sure I will, and re reread the entire series again and sort of sort out my thoughts about which book technically works the best or like which book I found the, mo the more impactful. But the third book is where like I, my enthusiasm for Harry Potter really kicked in. No, and yeah. similarly... I'm the first two books. I'm really glad that Harry's going to Hogwarts. The third book is the one where I'm like, I wish that I was there. Like, mm -hmm. th that's the one where I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, like I want to take a class with Remus Lupin. Like, all this stuff with the Boggart is awesome. Yeah. I want to have the Marauders map. Like, that's crazy. That's great. Like, oh, you know, yeah, we haven't talked about the Marauders map. So cool. <laughs> so good. So, cool. Man, so good. If Wesley and I had one of those. Oh my God. <laughs> Did you guys? Did you guys die. ever go into the tunnels? Probably. Nah. Cannot confirm really? nor deny. <laughs> I, I, I went into the tunnels oh, a that's couple not true. times. I went in once. Um, because I was on, I was on. I'm gonna get in trouble, like with PSAFE, you know, just <laughs> recording this. But I was on. Well, it was only on second stage staff. This is the student theater company at Wesleyan, and and also background. There's all these like, quote unquote, secret tunnels underneath Wesleyan, and a bunch, a bunch of like northeast colleges have them yeah and and they're but, kind you know, of the worst kept secret ever yeah like you all know they're they're there but you're not supposed to go into them yeah but so being on second stage staff and being friends with people who had keys to basically everything in the 92 theater we had keys to get into one of the entrances of the tunnels and I remember I I can only remember one time that I went down there and like as we came out of one of the doors, there was a public safety officer just like standing there. And we were like, <laughs> Hi. <Sup? laughs> so we're on the we do theater and uh we're doing something important down here. Not <laughs> for <laughs> <laughs> but Curiosity. Nope, not at all. But yeah, the the Marauders map at Wesleyan would have been would have been awesome. Ah, oh, killer! So killer. clutch for getting out of the tunnels. So I mean, clutch. yeah. <laughs> not Zach that has no things. experience. And I and man, like I wonder if kids now who like grow up with like IMAPs on their phones, yeah. like if like the mm. luster is a little bit off. But I remember just like yeah. the idea of like this interactive map that like changed and updated and could like tell you things. I was just like, holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. JK Rowling basically invented a uh, GPS and like locations tracking. hundred percent. Not the U S military. Yeah. Nope. 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 <laughs> yeah. The real, real Marauders Mac map, map definitely doesn't exist at the NSA. Oh my God. Wait, is there, there should be, I'm sure there is a Marauders map app that oh, boy. would be like Google Maps, but Marauders Map oh, style. Man. But wouldn't it only be for people who've opted in to the Marauders Map to then reveal your location to other people who are using the Marauders dot app? E I guess. Yeah, I guess. I guess you'd have to do that, or you know, you'd get the you'd get the little pop up thing that is like, "You're surrendering all of your private information." Do you agree? Yeah. And right. 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 Nothing yeah. we <laughs> didn't do for Pokemon Go. 
fair. Right. Yep. Spare no expense. Give it all away. Zach, I know. I'm no. I'm curious to hear what your experience with Harry Potter is, but I also know that you're a big fan of the audiobooks, and so I wanted to ask you about that. So, so how and, that started was yeah. that uh, my mother used to read Harry Potter to me when I was like mm-hmm. nine or so. And yeah. she got so tired of rereading the same books that she started recording them. And then she got so tired of recording them that she hired Jim Dale to do it. Um, <laughs> luckily, he had already done it. So his rate was amortized across the entire publishing industry. Um, and so uh, so I just had, uh, for a while, the audio cassettes and then eventually the DVDs came. Uh, the DVDs. The CD-ROMs. Those, um, those things. The scene. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, how I sleep learned a lot of the trivia, um, because nice. apparently nice. your brain is still listening when you're unconscious. Yep. Yep. I had a, I had a closest experience to you, Zach, which is that I first started, and I've talked about this before, so I apologize to those of you who are listening, who've heard this already, but I, I first, first read quote unquote Sorcerer's Stone in like ninth grade when we read it out loud at school. Emma, 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 silly Emma, you weren't in ninth grade. You were nine years old, which was fourth grade. If I didn't clarify that, this joke coming up wouldn't make sense. So, uh, future Emma out. Mm. And then I got really, really into it, and I read the first couple books by myself, but I remember that actually I read them to my mom, because nice. clearly I had a, a, you know, I was already poised for a career in voiceover and audio books. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that your professional voice? Is that? That is <laughs> my professional, you know, professional Jarko. I am a memoir so that you can read it in that voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Life goals. Life goals. Well, you know, as opposed to amateur Jarko, that is professional Jarko. There we go. (laughs) It all checks out. Unless anybody has any other other thought, any other thoughts on these books, the series, the movies, whatever. It's good. That's my hot take. (laughs) I Harry Potter books enjoyed it. (laughs) When I was a kid, it was formative. (laughs) <laughs> like in 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 sneaky ways, yes. I mean, it was obviously it all was. formative as like a pop culture phenomenon that we all experienced together because we are, I think, all of us blessed to be in that age bracket that had to wait for mm-hmm. the books as they came out and yeah. sort of saw the movies as they came out in succession. So it's formative for that, but just like the ideas in the book, the thoughts about uh, injustice and about being able to rescue yourself and... Um, to try and try again at things and not have magic fixture problems. Like all of, all of that stuff is is rattling around inside all of our heads too. It's true. Yeah, I think I think I don't fully understand the way to which these books like were a part of my childhood mm-hmm. and part of my subconscious growing up. And um that's why it was such a huge betrayal to learn last episode while I was recording the Chamber of Secrets episode with Winston that he didn't read any of the books <laughs> until he was in high school. No. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Gasp. Oh my God. Gasp. That's a that's an entire different worldview. We got divorced. We got over it. We got remarried. <laughs> 
That is that's um, that's um, one expensive spat, Emma. <laughs> it was, but you know, that's well, you know how... some lawyers. But that's the color. Yeah, I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that's just like baffling to me that not everyone had that experience. Who's like in roughly our age group yeah. of devouring these books and then having to wait and then rereading them all before the next one came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that was. That was my uh, that was my habit, you know, and like crazy. But like some people haven't even read the books; they've only seen the movies, yeah. and then they I don't know. understand what happened between Sirius and Jane because <laughs> seriously, that scene doesn't explain anything. Everyone just like it was so loud, and doors slam, and like kapow, the spell knocks Snape out, and like before yeah. you even know, and then you're just moving on. <laughs> yeah, and nothing was explained. Yeah, that's fair. But then Pettigrew shows up, and then. You know, he disappears again. Like very, very quickly. quickly. <laughs> very quickly. <Yep. laughs> I don't know how you wouldn't understand what was going on because it's a very complex plot device that uh, is not very easily perceptible. So I don't know how people who just saw the movies didn't get that. But also, if you've only just I mean, seen the movies. we all watched Lost. There's a lot of things that we watch and don't get. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sarah, we'll so talk targeted. later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have feelings. <laughs> oh, me too, me too. There's a very potentially a lost episode coming up. Ooh. Ooh. Boom. Man. That was... <laughs> I heard it, I heard it. That yeah. was the sound stinger. Thank you. <laughs> from the show. If you, if you, dear pairing listeners, if you thought this episode was shady, just you wait yeah. until the lost episode. I know. Yeah, Such that one intrigue. didn't inform our morality in fundamental ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feel free to chime in with any other thoughts, but until then, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna plug you guys a little Aww. bit more. Thank you. We, well, we started out by talking about fear of public shame is your new little. Company, yeah, that's right? kind of our new umbrella term for nice. the things that the three of us are doing. So nice. Last year we did a little three episode audio drama called Time Bombs, and now we're it's doing kind unbelievable. Of our, oh well, thank you for saying Aww. so. So um, fun of course. To make. And now we're doing our talk show, No Bad Ideas, and both of those kind of live under fear of public shame. Right, and then a, uh, a, a the other company that you're involved in, which. May or may not exist anymore. I don't know. But Kind of Evil Genius also did uh, Wolf 359, mm-hmm. which you may have heard of. And uh, these are the these are the masterminds behind that. So definitely check it out if you haven't. And the vo- and one of the two voices that built what the <laughs> <laughs> sorry was busy with important details of science. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, can we re-record the episode with Zach just as Hilbert? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we definitely can. Who? Only Dimitri here. <laughs> Only Dimitri. <laughs> I don't understand this Zach and Hilbert. Only if you say, God damn it, Eiffel, every five minutes. <laughs> every five minutes. God damn it all. <laughs> Well, on that note, is there anything else that you all would like to plug individually? I know that you all have other projects going on as well. Weirdly not. We have a lot of things that we're tinkering with and toying on, but at least for me, um, check out check out No Bad Ideas, guys. Yeah. yeah same, same, so same. Good. Oh. So good, so good. Well, you guys, thank you so much for talking with me about Harry Potter. Oh, it is and our pleasure. Thank you for having us here. Oh, you're welcome. 
here in this space in which we are cohabitating. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love you guys. Bye, Emma. Bye, Emma. Bye. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Julia Shafini. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.